All of this, I think, has led to really treating pancreas cancer as more of a systemic illness in cancer and really focusing on the multi-modality approach using surgery in addition to chemo. So I think it's really the combination of both things um, that's really like helped with the advancement and increasing the survival rates that we're seeing right now. Over the last few years, pancreatic cancer survival rates have doubled, thanks largely to clinical trials that have helped doctors better understand which treatments have the best impact on the tumors. Despite the advancements, pancreatic cancer remains a difficult cancer to treat and long-term survival is low. But experts are hopeful that cutting-edge technology such as organoids, a collection of a patient's cells that are maintained in a petri dish, will lead to continued improvement in outcomes for pancreatic cancer patients. My name is David Reich-Hale, and today on 20-Minute Health Talk, we are joined by Dr. Matthew Weiss, Physician-in-Chief and Director of Surgical Oncology for the Northwell Cancer Institute. Also with us is Dr. Sebeda Galami, a cancer specialist and surgeon at UC Davis in California. So pancreatic cancer is one of the hardest cancers to detect early, and that leads to it getting caught in later stages. And of course, this creates a landscape in which a diagnosis and outcomes are often not great. Why is that? Why is it so hard to diagnose early? Yeah, so I mean, if you, if you think about it, pancreatic cancer, more than 50% of patients, when they're diagnosed, are going to have metastatic disease. They're going to have stage four disease, the cancer spread from the pancreas to somewhere else in their body, whether it be the liver or the peritoneal cavity or the abdominal cavity, the lungs. So the vast majority of people are presenting with pancreatic cancer in a very, very late stage. And, and it brings up a couple of questions. No, number one, there's, there's the thought out there that pancreatic cancer probably very early on has the propensity to spread, that it may be metastatic very, very early on in its disease progression. And then there's also the idea that that frequently patients don't present because they don't necessarily have symptoms. Um, the symptoms of pancreatic cancer, depending on where the cancer is in the pancreas, can be completely asymptomatic. They can be very vague and subtle. They can have, you know, kind of diffuse abdominal discomfort, sometimes changes in their bowel habits. Sometimes patients will have new onset diabetes. But you can imagine pancreatic cancer is a disease of people in their 70s and 80s, and, and just hearing that someone developed diabetes doesn't necessarily set off the alarm bell that they have pancreatic cancer, although we know there's an association with new onset diabetes and the development of pancreatic cancer. So it's certainly a problem, and there's, there's a lot of research efforts out there right now looking at you know, early detection of pancreatic cancer. Can we, can we pick up with a blood test? For instance, we know about blood tests for prostate cancer, you know, PSA tests. Up until now, there, there really isn't a simple blood test that's been developed. There isn't really a screening method. We don't do, you know, screening CT scans of people's pancreas like we do screening colonoscopies uh, for colon cancer. So, so there's limited amount of screening. There's, there's, um, there's very little in terms of, you know, um, a blood test that we can perform routinely to pick it up early. And, and as you said, the reality is we pick up pancreatic cancer far too late. Dr. Galami? I think Dr. Weiss has really covered um, most of it. I think the issue is really the vague um, symptoms. It's really not uncommon when you see a patient that's really presented, but now they recognize as symptoms, but it's been going, going on for months. And they say, well, I just thought it was a little bit of a GI upset and 
some big pain. So I think that's the main issue. Yeah. I mean, it's very interesting that at the end of the summer, frequently we don't see a lot of patients present with pancreatic cancer. We'll have a lull. And I always joke that people think that they're just tan at the end of the summer. And in reality, they're turning jaundice and the power of denials is a real thing. You know, your skin maybe looks a little different color, but you don't notice it right away. Maybe a loved one finally sees you that hasn't seen you in three or four weeks and they say, wait a minute, you, you look different. Or, I mean, I saw a patient today that's lost 37 pounds. 37 pounds. I mean, that, that clearly they haven't been feeling well for probably months to lose 37 pounds. But it just goes to show that, that it can be so subtle and gradual over time that sometimes people just don't seek care until it's too late. In particular, recently with the, with the COVID pandemic and so forth, we've seen certainly a little bit of a shying away from going to doctors and getting routine care. I think you're starting to see that patients are even now presenting later. And a lot of the other symptoms you mentioned could be almost anything right? Having issues, bowel issues, or some of the other ones that you described. That Without a doubt. Without a doubt. I mean, Dr. Galami, how many times have you seen a patient that in the preceding few months has had their gallbladder out because they had cholecystitis? I mean, yeah. you know, did they really have cholecystitis? I don't know. Yeah, it's the, either that, I think, or reflux, right? Oh, we thought it was a little reflux and just indigestion, back pain. I thought my back was just hurting because I always have back pain. So those are some of the very common misleading symptoms and signs. It's very true. I mean, it's it's amazing how many patients have already seen an orthopedic surgeon or a neurosurgeon with back pain. And, oh, they got some plain films, and then they got an MR, and maybe there was something subtle in their pancreas, and now all of a sudden, guess what? It's more obvious. So I think, again, early intervention, early uh, detection is, is, is going to be a key component of the future. And clearly, if they were going through all these other appointments, by the time they get to you, a lot more time has gone past. Correct. I mean, it's funny. Um, I've always been a big believer that kind of the, the time to, to the actual diagnosis and the time to treatment is, is essential in all cancers, but in particular with pancreatic cancer. And some of the things that we do now to try to shorten that time is, and we've talked about this before, is we kind of have an entire team across our system that, that deals with pancreatic cancer. And and the goal of that team is we have essentially a single one-day clinic where patients can come in with a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, and they can be seen by providers and doctors and specialists in multiple disciplines at the same time. And, and what that does is it not only ensures higher accuracy in terms of their diagnosis and their staging, but it shortens the time to come up with a treatment algorithm okay, you're going to get surgery now and then you're going to get chemo or, hey, much more likely these days, you're going to get chemotherapy and then you may get radiation and then you're going to get surgery after and you're eligible for A, B, and C clinical trials. In the past, you know, when you talk about 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you know, a lot of cancer care in general, in particular pancreatic cancer care, was kind of siloed. You saw a surgeon and you got a recommendation, then maybe you got sent to a medical oncologist and you got a recommendation, and then you maybe got sent to a radiation, and, and people got bounced around, and all of a sudden it was four, six, eight weeks later, and they hadn't actually started treatment. Now one of the things that we do here, and I'm, I'm sure Dr. Galami has a similar program at, at her institution, is is we shorten that interval. We shorten times to appointment. We shorten times to the, to the decision on what treatment is going to be provided. And within a week or two, not only are patients seen within three days, but within a week or two, they've been initiated on the definitive treatment for their pancreas cancer. And I, I think it's essential. Are there any advancements in being able to catch the disease earlier? 
a lot of what we're focused on now is early detection in terms of surveillance and high risk. You know, for instance, it's very common for patients to get a CT scan or an MRI for other reasons, and they have an incidental finding of something in their pancreas. And what do they do with that? Um, if you look at all people walking down the street, anywhere from about 8 to 10% of them, if I do a CT scan or an MRI, will have a cyst in their pancreas. Some of those cysts have the potential to turn into a cancer. Some of those cysts have the potential to develop a cancer elsewhere in their pancreas, not even in the cyst itself. So one of the programs that we've built here is actually a pancreatic cyst surveillance clinic and a, and a high-risk surveillance clinic, meaning patients that either, either have a known genetic predisposition to developing pancreatic cancer or have a strong family history of pancreatic cancer. We define that as two or more first-degree relatives with pancreatic cancer. But we now have essentially protocols to survey those patients. Um, the problem is, is that we're surveying them now with still what I would call crude measures. We're doing CTs, we're doing MRIs, we're doing maybe tumor markers like a CA199 level. I think the future is going to be more sophisticated than that. The future is going to be a blood test, you know, measuring proteins and circulating tumor DNA or something that, that, that will, you know, tell us much earlier that someone that, hey, this cyst isn't just a simple cyst. This cyst is going to be a cancer at some point. You need to do something about it. Now, on the bright side, the five-year survival rate has doubled. Now, it's from 5% to 10%, but it's still it has doubled. Why and how has this happened? So you're, you're, you're quickly becoming a surgical oncologist because you knew the, the right thing to say, that the, the, the survival rate, the five-year survival has doubled, but it's only gone from 5 to 10%. It's almost like a statistical quagmire if you think about it. But, um, you know, we, we've made advances. Um, systemic chemotherapy's gotten better. Some local therapies like what Dr. Galami and I do, surgery, that's a local therapy. We like to think we do that pretty well. Radiation, um, the technology has improved. They do more high-intensity focal radiation now. You know, we, we have made improvements, but just not nearly fast enough. Um, if you think about cancer care in general, you can kind of divide cancer care into, into local therapies and systemic therapies. And systemic therapies have improved for pancreatic cancer, but they're still not great. If you look at metastatic, you know, pancreatic cancer, and Dr. Galami, I'm sure, could talk about the specific trials, but, you know, if you look at the improvements in systemic therapy, it, it, it's, it's been, again, a doubling of survival, but still not a survival that we're happy with. I think what, what's really biggest, the, it's been a, the biggest advancement is that how we look at pancreas cancer, right? It used to be that, like Dr. White said, we used to really treat it with surgery as a local therapy. And that was pretty much it for like those with resectable disease, right? And now the school of thought has really turn into, you know, after we had like the, one of the very biggest, I would say first advancements was like basically giving systemic therapy after surgical resection. And um, that we noticed doubled the survival rates for patients with resectable pancreas cancer. And that was like the Conco trial where we had gemcitabine. Then obviously we've had newer agents like Pulferinox. And so that really compared um, adjuvant Pulferinox to gemcitabine. And I think that really like also showed probably the best survival we've ever seen in the larger study and the produced study. So all of this, I think, has led to really treating pancreas cancer as more of a systemic illness in cancer and really focusing on the multi-modality approach using surgery in addition to chemo. So I think it's really the combination of both things um, that's really like helped with the advancement and in increasing the survival rates that we're seeing right now. Yeah, I think I think those are those are, you know, very, very good points. Um, 
you know, systemic therapy, if you think about it, what we're always trying to do is the, the, we know that of the three treatments for pancreatic cancer, surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation, the only one to date that it's considered curative is surgery. Unfortunately, that CONCO trial showed that only with surgery alone, only about 9% of patients are cured that you could double that survival by adding systemic chemotherapy. And at the time, it was actually gemcitabine, which isn't really a great chemotherapy, if you think about it. It's not one of our more effective treatments. What's been interesting is, is we try to shift. I, I talked earlier about 50% of people have metastatic pancreas cancer at diagnosis, but another 30% have localized disease, but it involves major blood vessels in the area that make it difficult to technically remove what we call locally advanced or borderline resectable, difficult to remove tumors that are involving major blood vessels. When we look at the, at the two big trials that came out with me, for metastatic pancreatic cancer and systemic therapy, one of the things that, that people like Dr. Galami and I noticed about the New England Journal paper looking at fulfirinox in the metastatic setting was that there was an impressive radiographic response rate with fulfirinox so that, so that not only did it make patients live longer, but actually their tumor shrunk a bit. And what it made most surgeons think is, well, if we now have effective systemic therapies that can shrink the primary tumor, can we now take tumors that before were involving major blood vessels, shrink them or have disease non-progression, and can we be more, more aggressive with surgical tactics? And, and the reality is that the, the answer is, is yes. Um, whereas historically 20% of patients were considered surgical candidates, now probably routinely in most of our high-volume centers were 30%, 35% of patients are now surgically, you know, surgical candidates. But likely because systemic therapy's gotten better, radiation therapy's gotten better, it's allowed us to be a little more aggressive from a surgical standpoint. And, and we're having good outcomes. You know, we're, we're curing patients that have locally advanced tumors that historically we're told there's no chance of cure. You have a median survival of a year. Now we have patients like that that are cured. How many chemotherapies are involved in pancreas treatment? Because obviously it depends on various factors, including I suppose a person's genetics, the breakdown of the tumor, anything else that I'm missing? I can answer. So um, the, the main two, I guess, you know, treatment regimens that Dr. Weiss, um, you know, already alluded to is one, we have fulfirinox, and then we have gem gemabraxine, like gemcitabine-based um, therapies. There is a small subgrid of um, patients with BRCA genetic mutations, where we now actually have a novel, more strict targeted therapy. So that is probably like one of the other really kind of more exciting advancement in the field. But I would say those two other um, chemotherapy backbones are really like the basis of um, the treatments that we see. And there was actually a recent trial like the SWAC-1505 that was just published. And it asked a really interesting question. It asked like, which one is really the winner in the resectable setting? When you're getting perioperative chemotherapy plus surgery, which is, is like sort of the winner. And unfortunately, we didn't get an answer. Um, you know, we, we saw that the survival rates were in general, um, you know, very similar between the two groups. And um, what was really exciting, I think, about um, that trial is that we had really a rapid accruement to it. So I think, you know, overall patients are accruing to clinical trials, which is very um, positive in the nature. But what we don't really have is like the answer of like which chemotherapy is really like um, the stronger agent. So you know, there's still like many questions you know, to be answered, I think, in the area of um, sort of pancreas cancer. 
So two of the things that we're working on here right now, number one is, and we just submitted an abstract uh, revolving around this, is the development of organoids, pancreatic cancer organoids. So we, we have a strong collaboration with Cold Spring Harbor Lab. We also work through the Feinstein Institute of Clinical Research for our clinical trials. But what we do is we have a, when we do a biopsy at the beginning of a patient's treatment, we, number one, we sequence their tumor. And number two, we grow an organoid, which is essentially like a tumor grown in a Petri dish that we can do multiple passes of, and then we can test different chemotherapeutic agents against to try to predict which one of those regimens they should go on. Now, it's very, very early stages. We, we clearly can show that there's a correlation between what the organoid would predict they would respond to and what they do respond to. Um, we've done that in a retrospective manner. The future, I think, is going to be in the short term that you're going to actually di- you're gonna dictate what therapy people get started on based upon the results at the beginning. And then you're going to do sequential biopsies and sequential organoids to determine whether their tumor's changing over time. So how are organoids developed? So they're developed by really smart people in the, in the lab. <laughs> Dave Tuvison is one of the pioneers in this, and I've worked with Dave for a very long time. He's a great guy, a medical oncologist. Um, they take the tumor itself, and they basically put it in a Petri dish with the right, with the right growth you know, matrix, and they do multiple, multiple passes of it, and then they grow it. They grow it in a Petri dish. And what that enables them to do is to test not only chemotherapy that we normally use for pancreatic cancer, but... We can actually try some drugs that aren't routinely used for pancreatic cancer, which may be the most interesting part of the organoids. So what can the average person take from the advancements of organoids? I mean, I think, I think part of the question you're asking is what, what's the future going to look like and how far off is it? And I, 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 this is basically a, an educated guess. I like to think educated, but it's a guess. I, I could foresee a situation where patients come in, they're diagnosed with a pancreatic tumor or pancreatic cancer. Their tumor is developed into an organoid whereby you decide which chemotherapy their tumor is most likely to respond to. They get started on that chemotherapy or that drug based upon what the organoid predicts they will respond to. And then hopefully over time, you have a better mechanism by which you can gauge how they're responding, whether that's through things like circulating tumor DNA or whether it's a repeat biopsy that then you reevaluate their sensitivity profile to the chemotherapy along the course of their disease. But I think what you're going to see is you're going to see what what we refer to as precision oncology, and it's going to be real time. It's going to be time sensitive. It's going to be precise for the patient's individual tumor. I mean, let's be honest. Every pancreatic cancer, I'm sure Dr. Galami would agree with me, no no two pancreatic cancers are exactly the same. None none of them respond the same way to therapy. None, None of them act the same way. I mean, I sometimes see one centimeter tumors in the, in the pancreas, but the liver is riddled with metastatic disease. And then I'll see a patient with a 10 centimeter tumor and no metastatic disease anywhere. They're both pancreas cancers, but they're different cancers. And up until now, we're treating them with the same therapy, you know, a shotgun approach. We need, we need more sophisticated methods to determine what to treat them with and how to gauge response. So is there a, one advancement that sort of excites you about pancreatic care moving forward? I'll leave that one up to Dr. Galami. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> I honestly say that the biggest advancement in pancreas cancer is not the drug development or even the chemotherapies because a lot of those things um, are still in development, but it's really the multidisciplinary approach. I think the way we're doing better is by trying our best to use multimodality therapy, discussion of each patient, and using really an individualized approach. 
I think that's really been the driving force that we're seeing better survival rates. And that's really exciting actually to see that we're really talking to each other a lot more than we used to. Dr. Weiss and Dr. Galami, thank you for joining us on 20 Minute Health Talk. And to you, the listener, thank you for tuning in. Next week on the show, we speak with Dr. Chaitan Sathya, Director of Northwell's Center for Gun Violence Prevention, and Dr. Joseph Sakrin, a trauma surgeon at Johns Hopkins Hospital. Both will be speaking at the third annual Gun Violence Prevention Forum, a virtual event, on December 15th. A registration link is in the show description. My name is David Reich-Hale. Hope you have a great week. Get more expert insight from some of the leading voices in healthcare today. Subscribe to 20 Minute Health Talk on Podbean, Pandora, Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts.